Um, all right, let's start the clock. Um, and I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 4. We, we're studying the letter of Ephesians that Paul writes to this church in Ephesus. And last week, Fritz did an outstanding job, and he, was, he did the first uh, 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4. And what he talked about, and he was referencing the week before, that this is the beginning of the crushing burden of Ephesians. And, and that comes from, as we talked about even the week before that, that, listen, if you just open up Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, and you begin to try to live Ephesians chapter 4 without the reality of Ephesians 1 through 3 working its way in the interior of your life, that you're, you're not being strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man, chapters 4 through 6 are a crushing burden. But if you're cued into, leaning into what the Spirit is doing in your life as a believer, you come into chapter 4, and it is this grand vision of the Christian life. It's this beautiful picture of all that you were created to be, who we were created to be as the church. Now, here's the tension. Let me, let me tell you the tension. The tension is this. We can read in the Bible, and there are a couple of things that intersect. One of those things is, hey, I'm a, the, the old is gone, the new has come. And so we think, okay, great, the old is gone and the new has come. Why do I wake up with the old so much? I have been freed from the power and the slavery of sin. Why do I sin so much? Why do I struggle with it? I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. It's been three days, and I haven't even give, given Christ a thought. You see this tension? And we all live with it. And it's this reality of, you know, already everything that... Jesus has done to reconcile us to God. Already, all of that is true. It's all true completely. And we are not yet fully experiencing it. And we won't fully experience it until we're face to face with Jesus. But there is this in the meantime that we live. And, there, and the reality is Paul wants to give us a vision for this in the meantime. We can live these new self-lives, these, these new creation lives. We can live in that. But we have to make sure we understand Paul. Because if you understand Paul of saying, listen, here, so one through three, here's a bunch of doctrine, beautiful, majestic doctrine, paint pictures, write poems, stand in awe and worship of it. And that's disconnected from, here's what your life is going to look like. This becomes a list that you do. You hear this and you go, okay, what's all about my behavior? The Christian life is about behavior. I need to become more moral. I need to, you know, I am bad. I need to be good. That's, and we think that's what the Christian life is. Because so many of us have heard that all our lives. That Christianity is about being good. And I want to tell you this. No, no, it's not. It's about being holy, perfect, just like your heavenly Father is. And you can never do it. But the Spirit of God working in you is doing something. Now, if you leave here this morning, there are 11 imperatives, 11 commands at the end. If you make a list of 11 things you're going to walk out of here and do, I am going to chase you down to your car and rip the list out of your hand. All right. It reminds me of how we approach this in the meantime, what we call sanctification. Reminds me of a story of three guys, three old guys. They go to a to a memory clinic because they they they're losing their memory. And the doctor he says to the first guy, he says, "Okay, let's do a little test. Um, what, what what's one plus one? 
274, he said. There's a, okay. Uh, second guy, your turn. What, what, what's one plus one? Second guy looks at him and says, Tuesday. Okay. Looks at the third guy. Says to the third guy, okay, what's one plus one? Third guy says, two. <laughs> right, that's great. How, how did you get there? He goes, oh, it was simple. I just uh, subtracted Tuesday from 247. <laughs> got one. This is kind of how we approach Christian life. I mean, it makes that about that much sense. We, we don't know how it all adds up. We're just, we're just winging it. And if we get down to the bottom of it, all the things that we're doing that we think are sanctification actually are not. It's just the energy of our flesh. It is just the, the power of our own natural man trying to move from bad to good. And the Bible never speaks about this. This is how the Bible speaks about it. Nobody's good. Your only hope is to go from dead to alive. And Paul's saying to us this morning, not that I want you to be good. He said, I want you to live. I want you to live. You ever have one of those coaches in high school, you know, on a Monday after you had a, a regrettable weekend? Not that I did, but I had friends that did. And you're there at practice, and the coach says, you look alive. You know why he says that? Because you look like you're dead. You look like a zombie. Paul's saying to us this morning, I want you to look alive. So start with me. Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to begin in verse 17. We're going to walk through these verses real quickly, and I want you to see what it is that Paul's saying. Verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4, now this I say. It's actually the same way he started for, uh, chapter 4 verse 1. I therefore, is this the same thing Just we use now? It's carrying out the thought. And in 4.1, he wanted us to know, listen, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And here, same idea, just the negative side, which means if you're going to walk in the manner worthy of the call, don't walk. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, when you read Gentiles there, what Paul has in mind is what you were before you were saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's your life before Christ. I don't want you to walk that way. No longer walk how you used to be before you met Christ in the futility of your mind. Verse 18, because they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now look with me. Verses 17 and 18, he's giving us the profile. This is what the old man looks like, the Gentile, before you were saved. And this is what it resulted in. This is what you did. This is the profile. Verse 19, this is the practice. He's going to follow that same outline in the next set of verses, but I want you to be clear about it. This is what you look like. This is what you did. This is what you looked like before you were a believer. And I don't want you to walk in that way anymore. Because the outgrowth of that, the outgrowth of who you were resulted in this. Indecency, impurity, greediness. You know, because when you're greedy, when you're greedy, you're never content. Never able to rest in what's sufficient. Never able to give thanks for or to praise that which has been provided. This is what it leads to. You could turn the whole thing upside down and read it backwards from the, from 
you know, the end to the beginning, and it says this, the hardness of their hearts toward God caused their ignorance. Their ignorance concerning God and his will caused them to be alienated from a life of God. The ignorance of God. When they said, I, I, God, God is not important to me. God has no bearing on how I live my life. When you move, when you make that decision, then you move over into being alienated from a life with God. And when you're here, it's one more step. The alienation caused their minds to be darkened. And their darkened minds caused them to walk in the futility of their mind. Vanity, vanity, futility, Futility, cries Solomon in Ecclesiastes. It's the way of the world. Paul says, it's not who you are anymore. Don't walk that way. But a couple of things about this. Paul urges us not to walk that way because it, it is possible for us to walk that way. The, the condition that he's described, it is a real possibility for us to experience that even as believers. And he doesn't want us to. But like I said, he's not calling us to get better. He's not saying, look, if you're bad, then, then, then be good. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, instead of walking around like a zombie, the walking dead that you were, live the life that you were reborn into as a new creation. He wants us to wake up to this new reality. Now, this is how he's going to say it. Look at verse 21. He says, but that's not the way that you learned Christ. Notice, he doesn't say, that's not the way you learned about Christ. You learned Christ. It's a difference of before when I asked Leslie out on a date. I knew a lot of things about Leslie before I asked her out on a date. But I didn't begin to learn Leslie until I began to spend time with her. This is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, he is the subject, he is the content, he is the atmosphere, the air in which we breathe. That's what Paul is saying. And then verse 22 through 24, now listen to it. It says, to put off your old self. Now, you got to hear how he's saying it. He's saying, listen, this is, you learned Christ, and in learning Christ, you learned To put off the old self. Could say it this way. That the old self was put off. That's the way he says it in Colossians 3, 8 and 9. Or 10. Now. To put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life. And is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the profile of who you are as a believer. He's going to tell us what to do. He's going to give us the practices. He's going to show us how this works itself out in our daily life. But these are not commands. They read alike commands in the English because we have a hard time with what's called the infinitive. The imperative that gets translated into commands. These are not imperatives. They're infinitives. And you think, oh good, I can check out now. Now he's talking grammar. Listen, I had to go back and relearn infinitives this week. I pulled out my advanced Greek grammar. It's called the exegetical syntax of Greek. So Todd was reading a, a riveting novel compared to that earlier. 
and looked at the infinitives, and the infinitives, it's, it's, it's telling you something about you. This is what Jesus, this is what we learned. This is what we learned about. We learned this, that the old is gone, the new has come. That you, if you've been crucified with Christ and buried with him, you've been raised with him to new life. That means the old man is dead. The new man has been born. He's not saying put off the old man. He's saying the old man's already been put off. That happened at salvation. And the new man has been put on. And, and what we're called to do is continue to remember that all the time. Renew our minds in the spirit. Renew our minds in the spirit so we never forget it. We never forget it. We never forget it. Here's, here's the deal. Here's what the old man is. The old man functions like a phantom limb in our life now. It's been amputated. It's been cut off. It has died. And yet it functions very much like a phantom limb. Dr. Paul Brand in his book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, a phantom limb is the sensation that an amputated or missing limb is still attached. Approximately 80 to 100% of individuals with an amputation experience phantom sensations in their amputated limb. He describes it this way. Somewhere locked in their brains, a memory lingers of the non-existent hand or leg. Invisible toes curl. Imaginary hands grasp. A leg feels so sturdy, a leg feels so sturdy, a patient may try to stand on it. For a few, the experience includes pain. Doctors watch helplessly for the part of the body screaming for attention that does not exist. You know what the old man is in your life? It screams for your attention. You know what renewing your mind means? Reminding yourself it doesn't exist. Brand goes on to tell a story about a guy who was going to have his leg amputated and he'd known about the phantom limb deal and it, it really terrified him. And so he asked, he said, well, when you cut the leg off, what will you do with the leg? And he said, well, sometimes we do some tests on it, but mostly we dispose of it. It gets incinerated. He goes, can I keep it? You know, can you put it in a jar for me? Brand tells about how they worked it out. They did. They put it in and they kept it for him. And what he did was he had a shelf built in his living room and he put it there. And so every time he's sitting in his chair and he felt the sensation of the phantom limb, he would look up and go, it's not real. It's already been cut off from me. This is not real. That's real. It's dead and it's on a shelf. This is what it means to renew our mind in the spirit. Renew the spirit of our mind. To remember what has been put off and what has been put on. And so you say, great, how do we renew it? And then I say to you, you cannot renew the spirit of your mind. How does he say it exactly? He says it, renewed in the spirit of your mind. You cannot be renewed in the spirit of your mind apart from God's word. And I know, you, you come to here and you listen to that, you say, okay, well, then the sermon's about reading the Bible. Because there's only ever three sermons, right? Either read your Bible, give your money, Serving children's ministry. <laughs> right? I mean, that's kind of what we hear. And, and we have this unfortunate relationship with reading the Bible. We think, oh, reading Bible, oh gosh, okay, now I'm a Christian. This is the burden I have to carry for the rest of my life. This is my cross. We drag this Bible through our life, constantly feeling guilty for all that we haven't read in it and all that we don't know. It's the chains I've forged. I mean, no, jeweled treasure. It's the most valuable thing you have on planet Earth is the Word of God. And the Spirit of God in you is waiting for you 
your spirit to encounter God's word because you know what? God's word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Well, you know what that means? This is crazy. Do you know what it means? It means you don't even have to understand what you read for God's word to do what it's going to do. It's living and active. It reads you back. I mean, listen, it's great to understand. It's great to read thoughtfully. It's great to dig in. It's great to learn how to read the Bible. It's great to learn how to study the Bible. All those things, I do that. You've got plenty of time left. Do it. But that's not even the prerequisite for your mind to be renewed. The word of God is doing something, whether you understand it or not. He says in Isaiah 55, it is like the rain that comes down and waters the ground and does not return void. It will not return without accomplishing what it was sent to do. It's your treasure. Just jump right in the middle of it. so that you don't forget the old is gone, the new has come. Because if not, you'll walk out of here and think, well, I've got to get rid of the old. And I don't even know how to do that. I guess it's 247 minus Tuesday. You can't do it. You don't need to. It's already been done. You need to renew your mind. I'll say one last thing about these two things. Verses 22 to 24 is built into the life of the church. Put off the old, put on the new. Romans chapter 6 says that every time we observe a baptism here, when a believer in Christ stands before the church or in the community of the body and they go under the water and come out of the water, they go, it represents, it is a symbol that represents being crucified and buried with Christ and being raised to new life. And then they come out of the water and we all cheer and we always say, the water doesn't save you. You're saved before you got in the water. You're just, you're just not rehearsing it. It's the, it's the drama. It's the, it's the outward drama of what has already taken place inside. And we, you know what we say about baptism? You only have to do it one time. And that's why all these people are watching. Because even if you forget, they won't forget. You made a profession that you trust Christ. And you do that once. Verse 23, the renewal of our mind, we do that too in the church. You know what it's called? Communion. When you eat and you drink of this, do it in remembrance of me as often as you gather. Remember, renew. Remember, he died for you. Remember, he took your sin. His body was broken. His blood was shed for you. Remember, remember, remember. Renew, renew, renew. It's built into the life of the church. It's two things Jesus told us to observe. Baptism. Communion. Now, you have to be settled about the profile. This is who you are. Before you get to the 11 imperatives, the commands that start in verse 25. Now, if you pulled your pen out to make a list of 11 things, you're numbering 1 to 11, now stop it. Give your pen away to somebody. I want you to hear the vision that Paul's going to give you for a life that is new. The new creation life you were called to. First, you have to believe this is true. Second, you walk in it. You walk in what you already are. So listen to what he says, uh, beginning in verse 25. He says, therefore, again, remember, this is, this is one thing after another. All this grand theology, therefore, therefore. Remember, you can't get here without going through the bridge at the end of Ephesians 3. What God's doing in you so that it works its way out here. Therefore, having put away falsehood, 
So real quickly, here's what that means. You go back to Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your sins, in your trespasses. You were born a liar. And we're putting away the falsehood. We're putting away all the things. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. He wants us at the beginning of Ephesians 4 that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And doing that means, in verse 2, bearing with one another in love and maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Not creating it. Not manufacturing unity. Maintaining unity. And what threatens that unity among us what threatens our ability to bear with one another in love is falsehood, lies, deceptions, manipulations, self-centeredness, calculations. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. But we're members of one another. And then he goes on, look, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Again, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And again, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such is good for building, for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then in verse 30, he's just going to start listing things, which means there's endless application to the reality that you are a new creation in Christ. You pick an area of your life and you begin to apply it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Oh yeah, and along with malice. And be kind to one another. Because remember, the... We're saved. We're part of the church. We're doing this together because this is the display of the riches of God's kindness towards us. Be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. A few comments on some of these real quick. Putting away falsehood, put away your old self. Remind yourself that phantom limb cannot support you. The phantom limb is no longer there. And, and we speak truth to one another because truth in our midst, short accounts with each other, it protects the unity of the body. We belong to each other. We're growing up into Christ who joins us together. And all the imperatives here, all the commands, they serve this goal. Don't lie. See, what we say to each other, it affects the whole body. It affects the whole organism. It affects the whole church. One conversation over here that is filled with falsehood has a ripple effect through the entire congregation. Deception in the life of the body can't be tolerated because the whole body is dependent on one another. If the eyes lie to the feet about the danger coming ahead, Not only are the feet in danger, the whole body's in danger, including the eyes. That's why he moves into 26 and 27 and he says this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Now, I was looking at this this week. And we take that verse um, and we apply it. Here's how it typically gets applied. A lot of times it gets applied in marriage. 
You know, don't go to bed angry with each other. Which actually, I think that's a really good practice. I'll confess, you know, as much as when I was younger, I thought, well, that's why I'll never, well, when I get married, we'll never go to bed angry. Well, we did once. Here's what's interesting. I think when we read this, we read it and we think, here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, well, anger's really bad. And on that rare, you know, unguarded occasion that you feel like you might, anger might come, just, you know, just don't sin when you are angry. If you, in case you ever are angry, just don't sin when you are. We think it's conditional. Here's what's interesting. That's not what he's saying. You know what he's saying? Be angry. He's commanding us to be angry. Just don't sin while we do it. You think, well, what, what do you mean commend, commanding us to be angry? He sees anger as a positive thing. You know what he sees as a positive thing? He says, listen, anything that threatens the unity of our fellowship... Anything that comes in as a falsehood, anything that comes in as a lie, anything that comes in as a heresy, anything that comes in as a misunderstanding, undealt with, get angry about that. Swiftly. Don't let the sun go down on the cause of that anger. Get after it. Deal with it. The longer it tarries, the bigger problem it becomes. We, listen, I know, I, I mean, I live in the world you live in. Passivity has become a virtue. And I, I like passive things. You know, I mean, I don't like conflict. I don't wake up every day going, I hope I get a conflict today. Hope somebody's mad at me. Never think that. But we have to be people who deal with things. L listen, if it comes up, let's deal with it. Let's be people who, who say, I'm going to trust the Lord to step into this situation and let's deal with this misunderstanding. Let's deal with something that feels a little shady here. Let's deal with something that may need some light shined on it. Let's deal with the cause of anger before the sun goes down so it doesn't grow and fester and threaten the unity of the body. Things that threaten the unity of the body, we ought to be angry at that. Anger, he, he sees as this peace-protecting mechanism in the church. We just don't sin in it, which means we don't go get a team to be angry with us, which means we don't find our fingers on top of a keyboard blasting it out on social media. That'd be sin. And, and we need to deal with it so that it doesn't take hold and, and give the devil an opportunity in our midst. That's what he's saying. When he says, don't steal work. Because at the heart of you is you're a thief. You think, well, I've never stolen anything. Okay. But if you've, if you've told something in a way that wasn't fully true, but it ended up benefiting you because of the way that you told it, you stole, you stole there. You were a thief. You didn't, you didn't pay the truth in that moment. Listen, work Provide for yourself. Don't scheme. Don't manipulate. Don't take what's not yours. Work. Provide for your needs and trust that the Lord will give you an abundance so that you can help provide for others' needs so they don't have to steal. Let no unwholesome, what does it say? No corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Every word accounted for in our life. If I had the time this morning, I would take you and show you every prayer that we pray is saved. Every prayer is remembered. 
Take you to Revelation, I can show you right there. Paul's reminding us here, every word that we speak, we'll give an account for. Let no corrupting, which means rancid, talk come out of your mouth. Instead, look at what he says. Instead of that, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The, the, the idea of building up means to, to supply something that's lacking. To supply something that's like, you, you're in a room where the demands on the lives around you are greater than the individual supply anybody holds. And your words of encouragement have an opportunity to build them up. To speak an encouraging word, an apt word, a timely word. To build up, to encourage, to supply what needs, you know, to fill up what's lacking, that we do that to each other. This is part of what the church is. That's why we need each other. I need grace. You need grace. Peter says, you're a steward of it. If I need more grace, I need, Lord, I need more grace. And he says, in the most loving way, look around, it's, it's all over the place here. That we'd encourage one another. Reminds me of a story. There's these monks. They lived in a monastery deep in the woods, far, you know, remote from civilization. And the monks had this rule. Part of the rule of their community was, um, it was, it was a completely silent monastery. Nobody spoke a word. Nobody said anything ever except on Christmas Day. And on Christmas Day, a single monk would be chosen. And at the end of the meal, he would be able to stand up and speak one sentence. And then 365 days of silence. Until the next occasion. Well, one monk, uh, Brother Thomas, on Christmas, he was chosen. It's his turn to speak. And he stands up after 365 days of silence and he says, I love the delightful mashed potatoes we have every year with the Christmas roast. And then he sits down in silence for 365 more days. Well, the next year comes, and Brother Michael gets his turn. The lunch is over, and he stands up to utter his sentence, and he says, I think the mashed potatoes are lumpy, and I truly despise them. And he sits down in 365 days of silence. Well, the third year, it's Brother Paul's turn. Finish the meal. Brother Paul rises and he speaks. I am fed up with this constant bickering. <laughs> Even the vow of silence wouldn't keep us from it, would it? We need to build each other up. So that we do not grieve, he says in verse 30, verse 29, the Holy Spirit. Oh, I'd love to say so much about this. It's the idea of, the, of, of grief, of sorrow. The Holy Spirit's the, the joy of Christ, empowering us for the joy of the Christian life. And, and, when, we, and when we speak words and we say things and we, and, and, that, that are careless and that don't build up and, that, and, and, and uh, we... Um, we speak things that are false. We grieve. There's a sorrow that comes. More to say about that. We're out of time. But it, notice here, you're sealed for the day of redemption. If you went back to chapter 1, 13 and 14, at the moment you're saved, the Spirit of God 
He, the third person of the Trinity, comes and dwells you and seals you at that moment. And you find out here in chapter 4, verse 30, that it's, for, it's forever. You're never unsealed once you've been sealed. And in verse 31, it just reminds us, this is what the Holy Spirit does in us. Because verse 32 is the fruits of the Spirit be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. So for three minutes, I want to <clears throat> come back to the big picture, the big vision. Because I want to make sure we understand what it is that we just heard. Paul is talking about a, a life, a Christian life, a life that's alive, that's lived in the meantime between salvation and glorification. We call it sanctification. Too often we say, okay, justification, that's chapters one through three. That's what God did. Sanctification, chapters 4 through 6, that's, that's what I do. Wrong. Let me give some parting thoughts here in a hurry. Sanctification, it is what happens when the old being comes up against the end of its self-justifying, self-gratifying ways, however pious they may look. And it becomes a life that's lived in anticipation of the resurrection. Sanctification does not equal a moral life. Even though a lot of people, that's what they mean by it. A moral life, it's good, it's wise. But it's not the same thing. A moral life is not the same thing as being holy. The best that your old man can aim for, the best that your phantom limb can aim for is a life of morality. Sanctification is the death of the old man and the rising of the new. Morality is climbing the ladder of all the things you do rung by rung by rung, thinking you're getting closer. Sanctification has to do with, with the descent into your new creation, your new being. You're dying and being buried and rising again to being a neighbor. Spontaneously, freely giving of yourself in a self-forgetful way to those around you, in, in, in ways that are uncalculating. Ernest Becker in the book, Denial of Death, he says it this way, the hardest thing is not even the death, but the rebirth, because it means that for all, uh, it means that for the first time, we shall have to be reborn, not as gods, little g, but as human beings, shorn of all our defenses and projects and claims. We separated those things. Justification, sanctification, never meant to be separated. There's no sanctification without justification. It flows out of it. Elise Kirkpatrick writes, and because he loves me, she says, one reason we don't grow in ordinary grateful obedience, as we should, is that we've got amnesia. We've We've forgotten that we're cleansed from our sin. In other words, ongoing failure in our growth is, directly re is a direct result of failing to remember God's love for us in the gospel. If we fail to remember our justification, our salvation, our redemption, reconciliation, we struggle with sanctification because we are left still trying to justify ourselves. Forgetting. God forgives our sins. And the phantom limb of the hurts or the pain or the sin or the shame or the guilt 
lingers and you sit here and go, you, well, you don't know what I've done. Rebecca Manley Pippert says, that's, I mean, that's, that's the problem, isn't it? So many. You sit here and you can't get past what it is that you've done. Which means you're trying to justify yourself. Rebecca Manley Pippert, she says this, if the cross shows me that I am far worse than I ever imagined, meaning that I'm so bad that the Son, the eternal Son of God, it took no less than the death of the eternal Son of God to pay for my sin. If the cross shows me that I am far worse than I ever imagined, it also shows me that my evil has been absorbed and forgiven. If the worst thing any human being could ever do is kill God's son, and that still be forgiven? And how can anything else not be forgiven? Do you believe it? If you don't this morning, you, you got to remember, you got to be renewed. You got to remember. And when you remember, when you believe, it's what God's done. I'm a new creation. The old legs in a jar on the shelf. Then your Christian life it's no longer a to-do list that is your taskmaster. You're no longer a slave to that. The Christian life is a thank you from beginning to end. Remembering all that God has done. You never have to go back and bargain with God. You can't pay him back. You can't earn a favor. It's all yours for free. You're not just forgiven once, you're forgiven every time over and over and over and over again. And it's not an extravagance that you can repay. It is not a, it is, it's a generous love that you could never earn. You cannot, you don't need to. The response of your new life is gratitude. Don't have to protect yourself. You don't have to be scared of the truth. You don't have to keep yourself at a distance. It's a life of thank you. D.L. Moody says, and I'll be done. A lot of us, we, you know, this language, we got language now. We, we can talk about it. We can talk about holiness and sanctification. We can talk, talk, talk. I like what Moody says. It's a great deal better to live a holy life than to talk about it. We're told to let our light shine. And if it does, we don't need to tell anybody it does. The light will be its own witness. Lighthouses don't ring bells and fire cannons. Or post to Instagram. Moody said that. <laughs> to call attention to their shining. To just shine. To just shine. Can't run away from the world around us. We're objects of God's holiness in the midst of it. And the world around us desperately needs the life that Christ Jesus offers. I want you to live. I do. I want you to look alive. I want you to be alive. Remember. Renew. Step into it. Be thankful for it. Take a risk.
reach out, say, I'm sorry, and bask in the belonging to one another that we're called to. Well, I'm out of time. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, We didn't just read a chapter about all the things that we can do. We, we just finished studying a chapter about things that only you can do in us. To Philippians chapter 2, it is right. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But you tell us right there in that same passage that the thing we're working out is the thing you're working in us. You're working it in us. in the depths of our being. Father, we want to see that drawn to the surface of our life. And that's not in our own power, and that's not because of lists we make or rules we keep. Father, it's trusting you, believing you, being loved by you and loving you, embracing and taking the risk of what it means that we're joined to one another and members of each other and Father, living a life thankful for all you've done, not because we pay you back, but because we're deeply overwhelmed and thankful. So, Father, I pray we would know individually, as a church, as a group of people, the joy of our salvation that comes from the joy of your Holy Spirit that indwells us individually and corporately. And Father, we'd, that overflow, we'd live that out in a way that wouldn't threaten our, our fellowship, our, our love with one another, the unity we have. Father, we want to look like you. Reclaim what it means because you've saved us that we were created in your image. And so, Father, those are things only you can do. I pray you would do them in Jesus' holy name.